Recent articles published by the CBC have noted that the prevalence and severity of eating disorders have been on the rise. The National Eating Disorder Information Center has stated that the number of people that have reached out for support had doubled from 2019 to November 2020. COVID-19 has made this issue much worse as the pandemic has created a strong sense of fear, social isolation, and mental stress, which calls up past traumas. As well, the problem of food scarcity or food stockpiling can trigger anxieties about eating. As stated by the NEDIC, nearly 1 million Canadians live with a diagnosable eating disorder, and there are millions of others who struggle with food and weight preoccupation. Eating disorders have the second highest morality rate of any psychiatric diagnosis. Today on the Bostrick Project, we will be discussing topics relating to eating disorders, depression, and mental health. Today, the Bostrick Project interviews Michelle Pugel, who is a Canadian freelance writer who covers health news and shares her lived experiences with chronic illness, including depression and fibromyalgia. First published in her preteens for writing about depression, today we will be specifically discussing her memoir called Anna, Mia, and Me, which was written by 17-year-old Michelle as she battles anorexia nervosa and her recovery. It has purposely been published as originally written and edited by the young narrator to authentically capture what goes on through the mind of a young woman with anorexia. This book is available to purchase on Amazon. We want to continue to support this book, not only because of the message and the knowledge she shares in it, but Michelle also graciously donated 50 copies of this book to eating disorder clinics to support people who may not have the resources and communities who may not have the resources to educate people suffering with eating disorders. Just a few more of her many feats, Michelle has her Master's of Arts in Women's Studies and Feminist Research, a Diploma in Holistic Herbal Therapy, and a Double Bachelor of Arts in English Literature and Sociology. Michelle was published as a young author and poet in high school, and you can see her work on Yahoo, Thought Catalog, and top digital health publishers such as Healthline, and very well, as well as the mighty and Michael Landsberg's Sick Not Weak. We're so excited to have her, and now we welcome Michelle Pugel. The bosses will see you now. So Michelle, today we're here to talk to you about your newly published book, Anna, Mia, and Me, which is a memoir that you wrote when you were 17. You are now 31 about your experience with anorexia and your road and journey to recovery. For people, obviously it's going to be very important and impactful for people who deal with um, ED, eating disorders, or disordered eating, but even for people who haven't, I recommend reading the book because just reading it from your perspective back then and then listening to you talk about it now, but there are some like timeless concepts in the book that I want to get into too about control and instant gratification and being a woman or um, feeling like you're constantly having to achieve having to accomplish something to be worth anything and there's just there's so many things that in this book spoke to me and and I'm not someone who can relate to what you went through but that where I sat back and went okay I know that we or we don't experience the same thing but what she's saying would impact and help a lot of people 
eating disorder or not. So I think that that's a big thing from your book that you should feel really proud of is the fact that it doesn't just help people who are dealing with what you went through. It helps a wide range of people and should be read, I think, by a wide range of male, female, young, old, eating disorder and not eating disorder. Just for the listeners to know, the title Anna, Mia, and Me, Anna is referencing anorexia, Mia, bulimia, and me being Michelle. And we really discussed the topic, the title of her book, and how she really talks about the three different personalities she was dealing with at the time. In the throes of the eating disorder, I really do split anorexia and bulimia. Mm -hmm. And it's my way of working through understanding the symptoms that I was going through. So with anorexia, there was the obsessive weighing of myself, the hours in the mirror, there was the counting calories. It's, you know, anorexia is so closely associated with obsessive compulsive disorder Mm -hmm. for a reason. Um, It gets its grip into you. And then on the other hand, because I didn't understand eating disorders at all, I didn't know that it, it wasn't bulimia that I was experiencing. Um, It was actually part of recovering from anorexia that that binging happened if you're able to give some context um, when you wrote this book where you were the environment you were in give us some context that would be awesome absolutely there was a story in me that had to be told when I initially went to get help and realized that I was sick I knew that that had to become something more than just about my personal recovery so I really took, I took several months and I basically wrote it all down and I thought that it was going to lead, I think that looking back, I hoped that it was going to lead me to some sort of final destination with anorexia and I got very frustrated as you can tell in the book that I'm not, you know, I'm not perfectly healed yet, which is kind of the beauty that I see in it now. Um, which is interesting because now that I have been recovered for so long and can look back, I think it's important that I wrote this while I was still really in the muck of it. You know, if I had already recovered and was telling it as a backstory, it would be largely different and I don't think it would have been as honest. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the voice that you have in it is really interesting and seeing how you grow while you're writing it is is really cool too. But So are you writing this during the recovery process or before you um, seek help? Yes. So I would say that this is actually while I'm in treatment for anorexia. I would say early treatment. It is at the stage of my eating disorder where I no longer have what I deemed as control. So I hit that stage, the kind of peak is when I had that piece of cake. And it seems like something so small. But for me at that time, that piece of cake changed everything. It meant so much to me that I ate it as a way of proving to other people that I wasn't sick. But unfortunately, some something that doesn't get spoken about often in the recovery phases of anorexia is that relearning how to eat. So it really set off a series of really bad binge eating problems for me myself. And because I was so underweight and so ill, I started gaining weight rapidly. You will gain weight so rapidly when you start binging 
that the anorexia pulls you back. Like, see, you can't eat normal food like everybody else. It leads, you know. So for me, um, I sought treatment actually to stop binging. I I didn't stop um, I didn't seek treatment for anorexia. How you go back and forth with bulimia and anorexia and the way you talk about it in your book is like they were these three almost different personalities that you struggled with and you had relationships with each of them individually. Can you go into a little bit of depth on that? Absolutely. So it's interesting that you say that the three personalities, right? Because one of them is me, mm-hmm. but I I'm so disconnected from myself while I'm writing this mm-hmm. that you can feel that. Um, it's almost like a static character going through things without a lot of... It's almost like I'm not in it, right, mm-hmm. when I'm writing it. Um, one of the things um, that I think is very important to touch on is diagnosis or not. Mm-hmm. If you're struggling daily, weekly, monthly with body image and eating issues. If you're not eating, if you're using food as a punishment, there is a problem. Mm -hmm. Now, my official diagnosis at the end of my treatment was anorexia nervosa. Mm -hmm. It never led to hospitalization, but I was very close. I would say that it's known in the book as well that depression is one of my diagnoses. Um, and as I've grown into a woman, it seems that I, I often make a joke that the more degrees I get, the more diagnoses I get. <laughs> Cause it seems like the letters just keep coming my way. And I mean, in today's mental health climate, mm-hmm it's very, very easy to get hooked on these labels and these diagnoses and they can be helpful and they can be, I mean, there's, there's a real stigma that comes to them as well. Mm -hmm. Intensely. Yeah. I, what you were saying a little bit earlier, I wanted to touch on and go back. So you said the, there was three distinct characters in the book and it was Anna, me and, and Michelle. And you always refer to Michelle in third person, which is really interesting. Um, but did it really do felt like you had two personalities that were switching between each other as it's so displayed in the book? Was that truly how that was feeling? Exactly. You know, I've heard a lot of readers say like, that was so smart how you personified mm-hmm. them and how you brought them to life. And that wasn't intentional. That literally was my experience going on this battle in my mind when I'm walking through the hallways it was like the angel devil, but both of them were evil. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Both of them were pulling me to a different kind of toxic relationship with myself. Um, I had these voices. Once you say you have voices in your head, people start looking at you like, whoa. But (laughs) it really, I mean, it is the experience of mental illness. It's the same thing when you have depression. Those thoughts come in from seemingly nowhere. And it's like, who was that? What was that? I don't feel that way, do I? And it starts going around and around in your head. So, I mean, defining them that way was the only way that I could kind of take them out of myself and assess them and start to understand them from a lens of kind of like a really nerdy way of disconnecting and understanding 
this is an illness because in the early stages, and I'm talking like a year, so like eating disorders are, they can go on and on and on. So for about a solid year of my life, you could not tell me anything. You could not tell me anything about my weight, what I ate. I Mm -hmm. was so defensive and it created so much isolation and broke down relationships that you can't blame other teenagers for not knowing how to support their friend when their friend is going through an eating disorder. No one teaches you these things. But when you're a teen, all you feel is abandoned and you're looking at the adults around you and I think that there is a point that some people get to in their eating disorder where they're they're waiting for someone to pull them out of it and say, like, what is going on? What is going on? When people don't do that, it reinforces the voices. Mm-hmm. So did writing the book help you to because when you read the book you're extremely self-aware of what what's happening with these two you know personalities there are times when you talk about you would do things to satisfy the bulimia to get back at the anorexia and vice versa and so that was very interesting to read but you're also you're aware when you're reading it that you know how to satisfy one how to take away from the other so by writing the book is that how you became more self-aware of what you were struggling with? Like, did the book, I guess my question is, how did the book help you in your recovery process, writing it? The book was absolutely integral to my personal recovery process, largely because I was writing poetry since before I could pick up a pen. I was spewing it in my head. Writing for me has always been an outlet, um that then it was recommended to me because of my connection to writing and because I was very quiet. I I didn't know how to verbalize these things, but I knew how to put them on paper. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And I can't remember if my therapist told me to do it or if it was something we came up with as part of my program together. But I do know that therapy led me to writing this book. And Writing it allowed me, not only while I was writing it, to Mm -hmm. make sense of what was really going on. And the very ironic thing about self-awareness when you have mental illness is we are some of the most self-aware people, but it's still so difficult to get out of it. Like, I read it and I'm like, wow, at 17, I really had a grasp on what I was talking about here. But when I was in it, I didn't feel self-aware at all. I felt lost and alone and crazy. Absolutely crazy. And I think that going back, I mean, I read this book so many times to myself over the years when I needed myself to kind of give myself a pep talk. I want to really highlight how isolating eating disorders are. So when I say, you know, I needed my own book to give me a pep talk, it's it's true. It's just one of those things where you can become a very, very nasty person when you're suffering. Going through cognitive behavioral therapy, which also includes doing a lot of like workbooks, like actual homework, that there 
the only reason I got through it is because I wanted to heal. If you don't do the homework and you don't go to the therapy and you don't write about it or play music about it or sing, dance, whatever your therapy, like your art therapy is. Yeah, you have to acknowledge what's happening and let yourself feel it. Yeah, it's, um, it is like an addiction. The first step is admitting you have a problem. And that was the hardest step for me. So I have a question just based on what you just said. So, cause I want to try, I want to understand it from your perspective. When you say like admitting is the, that you had to admit it before you could even like, you know, think yeah. about getting help. Was it difficult to admit because you you said you were defensive, you didn't want to admit that you had a problem or was it difficult to admit because you knew that if you admitted it, then there would be a change. You might gain the weight, you might go back to how you were before and you were scared of losing what you thought you had built for yourself with your eating disorder. Yeah, um, I think it's an excellent question. There, There's a feeling of failure, mm-hmm. you know, when you were on a trajectory it started with just trying to lose 10 pounds, <laughs> like something so simple. The first part of it, the saddest part of it is that I didn't believe that I was sick enough to actually be qualified as anorexic. Um, that is a big part of denial that comes into it. And those voices as well. I I don't know if I would say it was the depression, but I mean, depression's always lying to you, telling you things that aren't true. And when it comes to the eating disorder, I can remember very clearly picking up a book on body image and the woman throughout the book admitted that she had an eating disorder and I saw myself in her. I saw myself in her behaviors, the calorie counting, the obsessive weighing. I didn't think about anything else but food for years. But it's almost like you're waiting for a crisis. You know, you see the 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 typical stereotype of an anorexic girl or well, yeah, a teen girl and they're very ill. You compare yourself to that, and even with my hair falling out and my menstruation stopped, the denial was so deep that I still wasn't sure if I was sick enough because I was eating. So I had this misunderstanding that, well, I'm eating. I'm eating. I'm not anorexic. I'm not starving myself. Mm-hmm. I, you know, but it was completely different. And then on the other side of it, It was absolutely a fear of letting other people into it. And once you admit it, yeah, you can't go back from that. You can never untell someone that you've suffered from an eating disorder. The thing is, is that everybody already knew it. It's obvious. And that's the part that sometimes really frustrates me now that I'm an adult woman is how obvious it It really is um, at times and how little intervention there seems to be. It's almost like we're scared. We're scared to go there. (laughs) But I always try to tell people from the person who was around people who I knew they were talking about me. I knew they were concerned. Say something. 
It's always better to say something than to not say anything. They know you know. They know you know. You know, trying to pretend like these things aren't happening, it doesn't make them go away. So yeah, I did I did have a mix of denial and I had a mix of un unreadiness really to to accept what it meant to have an eating disorder because like I said, I thought if I just stopped binging, everything would be fine. I find it I think it was really interesting how you said um you just needed somebody to say something and that something looking back you wish more people intervened. So did so in your experience was it people did not know tell you or no there was no one in your family that really had that discussion or so in my in my experience um the only two people who said anything from I mean there's they're saying something and there's talking to somebody from a loving open heart so my mother tried relentlessly and for that struggle I commend her immensely um she is the one who eventually guided me into seeking help but for a very long time our relationship was such that I'm going through depression and I'm going through anorexia. She she was quite frankly terrified to say anything. She didn't know what to do. And since then, we've had many conversations about it. And there's also many components that play into things. I mean, eating disorders never happen in isolation. The, the only other person from the outside, and I commend them again was the principle that I mentioned. I was going to mention that. Yeah. It was after I returned from summer vacation and I came back to school and she told me a story about her own experience with anorexia. And I wish that I had the insight at that time to add more of that detail into the book because hearing somebody else's experience and knowing knowing that somebody else knew and having somebody validate it as well. Because when you're unsure, having somebody look at you and say, what's going on? When you hear something like that, it's completely different from where you started wanting just to fit in, just to look yeah, good and be normal. Very drastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, entirely. But I think um, if there are listeners that are hearing this and they're wondering how they can reach out to somebody they're concerned about. I think it's great to have what you just said, just reach out and show concern and compassion. Compassion is key. No, I'm actually very interested here. You say that you wanted people to reach out and talk to you and stuff, because when you think about that, like for me, when I think about if I saw someone like that, I might think, well, maybe they'll just be defensive or they don't want, or they'll be mad at me if I call them out on that or I say something. So that's really interesting to hear. And you know what? I have to interject because there is a huge chance that they will be mad at you and defensive. Yeah. And I think that that's what prevents people from speaking up. From the other side of it, I would love everybody to know who's listening that even if you are, even if you do take that little bit of a brunt of it, you could have just saved that person's life. You really could have. I've looked back at people, like you can you can hear how I speak about my mom now with loving kindness. I don't look back and say like, oh, it's like, no, she tried to help. 
people would look at you and say, well, geez, at least she tried. At yeah. least she said something. They cared, yeah. It's always better to say something than nothing. And if you do get some sort of negative reaction back, just know that it's temporary and know that it you did more good than harm. As long as you're coming from a loving place. Yeah, I think that's a really good a really good message to send out to people. Yeah, it's it's super interesting that you say like it's initial a big defensive feeling when people may address something, but and you say it a lot I think more at the beginning of the book than than later on is that you really just wanted to fit in into a way that no one even paid attention. No one saw you, no one made a note. That's kind of what you were aiming for at, at one point when you were writing the book. So, um yeah, I find that really interesting and in how we just have a desire to fit in. So maybe if you are getting a defensive response, just know that is that just an initial response. Exactly. Initial and it feelings fade, feelings pass. Um, but it is important to have those conversations with people that you love. So you mentioned that your eating disorder was affected by, and correct me if I'm wrong, but your family and your experiences. And so I think it's important for people to know and the knowledge that you have on it where eating disorders can stem from. So like psychological, genetic, environmental, what are your thoughts? Yes and yes and yes. <laughs> so that's that is the beauty and the complexity of mental illness is that mm-hmm. you can have basically all of these factors in play. And someone may be susceptible, more susceptible to developing an eating disorder than not. So they look at that and it's like, how many risk factors do you have? I don't know if either of you have ever heard of ACEs, um, adverse childhood experiences. So it is a way for mental health professionals and psychiatrists and social workers, everybody in the mental health field to kind of identify risk in youth. So the very simple explanation is the more bad things that you've been exposed to in your childhood, the higher risk you are to end up in poverty, end up experiencing a mental illness, a substance use disorder, um, a divorce, basically all of the things that you want to try and avoid in life. What happens in your childhood has such a big impact. And so you have a mix of genetics. I mean, genetics are so complicated on their own. You could have a predisposition to mental illness in general. And it might be that the eating disorder is what happens. It could be manifested in a different way, though. So there's a genetic component, but there's also a big environmental factor, um, And by environmental factor, I'm talking about your immediate family. This has a huge impact to the way that your parents speak about their bodies, the way that you learn about your body and the way that you learn about eating and food and what it's for. If you grow up in a household that is chaotic and full of unsafe situations, and somebody consistently brings food in, let's say, as the comfort measure. You learn that. That's a learned behavior. In the beginning, I talk about chocolate, poutine, ice cream. Like Those were the things that I learned to use to comfort myself, much in the way an alcoholic learns that behavior 
But you become an alcoholic because of also that genetic disposition playing into it. It's all part and parcel. Um, So one of the components to adverse childhood experiences is growing up in a home with an addict. It creates an instability. You don't feel like you have control. You don't feel safe. So part and parcel of all of the things that I talk about with anorexia is trying to gain control, trying to feel safe, trying to be seen in the chaos. It was my coping mechanism in a lot of ways. And when you're in an unhealthy environment, you learn unhealthy coping mechanisms. The story continued long after I ended it in this book. Yeah, those predisposed risk factors don't just disappear. No, exactly. Exactly. How did that, um, when you started diving into understanding those factors that made you vulnerable, how did that affect your recovery and that journey? You know, that journey is still an ongoing process, to be honest. Um, I'm 31 years old now, and I'm in therapy right now. And I'm not ashamed to say it at all. Like you said, those things don't just go away. And a lot of the time when you have something like an eating disorder and you get therapy for that, you heal it and you move forward. But there were all those things that contributed to that in the first place. So it's kind of like healing a symptom instead of a disease. And the disease is really that that toxic nature that I had with myself, that I, I learned to have with myself. So can we talk about the difference between an eating disorder and disordered eating? I, I want your um, opinion on some things about it too. This is an important topic to share with people who are listening. Like a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't know, first of all, that eating disorders are mental illness, but a lot of people don't know that there is a difference between when they have, if there are early signs of an eating disorder or if it's disordered eating or if it's disordered eating that can lead to an eating disorder. Absolutely. What's the difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder? Even the term disordered eating does kind of assume that there is a proper way to be eating. And that proper way is highly dependent on your culture. It's highly dependent on your socioeconomic status. The way that you learned how to normally eat is different than how I learned how to normally eat. The things to watch for, it's like those obsessive tendencies. It's the all-consuming things. It's are you finding yourself thinking about your next meal in a way that is unhelpful? Are you feeling anxiety over your next meal, over your last meal? I mean, you know when you look in the mirror... You know if you love yourself. You know. You can feel it. And you can feel when you look in the mirror and you're ripping yourself apart. Yeah, I was just going to say on the topic of food, there's a quote I would like love to read and we could discuss. So it's on page 51 and it says, Since when are goodness and badness determined by food intake? I'll tell you, since you were too young to even realize it, if you're a good girl and eat all your veggies, then you can have some pie, sweetie. Or you've been a bad girl today, no treat for you tonight. Simple parental words which get twisted up and confuse the teens and even adults which grow from those children. We need to grow as a society and realize things such as being good and bad cannot 
and I repeat, cannot be determined by what you do or do not eat. Parents know how much children love treats. It's merely a tricky technique to make their lives easier. It's these misconceptions that start basing qualities such as those on a deeper basis. So I found this just incredibly, like it just spoke to me. I feel like this is totally something I relate to, being good and bad food. Um, and you, you've recently just talked about it. So I was wondering how this appraisal of food can affect your diagnosis, how it affected your recovery, um, and how it affects you now too. Yeah, I mean, the more good food you eat, the better you become, right? That's the logic that goes through your head. So the good foods are also the expensive foods, the healthy foods. We categorize it like that. Um, these things, it's like a, a tally, right? You're always weighing then. Did I eat more good than bad? Am I more good than bad? And that's kind of where, I mean, I do want to interject here because I had the opportunity to be a stepmom for a while and to, to a young girl and Looking back on the passage now, it's such a natural thing for, for parental figures to do that I found myself doing it almost as a rewarding thing. And I was like, oh my goodness, what am I doing? I'm setting it up as this kind of game almost that you play. And then as an adult, you just play it with yourself. You know, if you get through that essay, you'll go have a beer or whatever it is. All of the ways that we talk about it are so wrong. It comes down to like goodness equals cleanness equals purity equals perfection. It's really troubling at times. Um, I try to correct people. I try to do that little bit and that's what you can do in your everyday life. I have to correct myself. It's worth even, even booking an appointment with a dietitian to talk about food. I literally had to learn how to re-eat and most of us, I, like, it's not a bad thing for any of us to kind of assess where we are. Yeah, I think that's really, that's important and you're saying reaching out and getting professional help and that's a good point because I think if people and young women especially are starting to feel that pressure and that an internal struggle to search for professional help because I think a lot of girls nowadays like you know, going to a part in your book you talk about how um, you found these websites that taught you how to not how to get away with not eating at the dinner table without people noticing how to eat food but with the least calories like these were these websites that you had access to but they eventually became blocked or shut down but then you looked at today's society nowadays and it's almost like the outlets are so much more readily available and they're glorified like it's just gorgeous tall thin models on instagram giving what they eat in a day what they have for breakfast how to be thin and it's it's not necessarily well it's not a professional someone giving advice right to young women and these girls are going okay this person does this and they eat this in a day so that's what i'm gonna do but in reality one Everyone has a different body type, but two, they're not actually seeing what that person is doing and experiencing and maybe struggling with behind the scenes. So I think what I'm trying to get at is nowadays it's so easy to see all these these things without even searching for them, without looking up how to not count calories. It just shows up on your social media. 
and it's just girls are taking not just girls men too are taking their health and dietary advice from people on instagram and on the internet not health professionals this is absolutely a pervasive issue it's something that i worry heavily about because of the unlimited access we have to the internet these days i mean at least back in my day my little flip phone couldn't connect me you know So it wasn't in my hand all the time. It was more disconnected. We had a family computer. Nowadays, a lot of homes, everybody has their own tablet. Everybody has a personal screen. There's more privacy around using social media. The thing that I would love to say is that you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. There were so many people who asked me for dieting advice. There were so many people who who wanted to know how I did it and my secrets and the exact things that I was eating and how much I was exercising. And I am so grateful that I did not have the opportunity to poison the world with it. Um, Sometimes, I mean, some of these Instagram influencers are coming from a good place. Um, Some of them are unaware of the kind of influence that they can have in a negative way. You know, they're like, well, I'm getting people to eat healthy, but they're creating an image of themselves that people are following. And that's the thing right now. And in the future, there's going to be no way for youth to get away from social media. It's going to be more our personal responsibility to teach youth and to action, like put into action, digital detoxes, unplugging getting away from that stuff you're never going to be totally safe from it so you have to talk about it use the platform for good yeah exactly use the platform for good yeah i think each of us need to do a lot of unlearning yes um it's around that good and bad and i think in lots of other topics (laughs) especially but there you need to realize what is not innate and it has been taught Exactly. Try to overcome that. Unlearning is the best way to put it. Absolutely. The majority of my recovery program was unlearning everything that I thought I knew about self-worth and value and success. I thought that I couldn't succeed unless I was a certain version of myself. And that turned out to be one of the worst versions I've met so far. I want to talk about the chapter on women from your book and specifically a quote that you have part of the reason why you published was the relationship that you went through and that experience and there was a quote that I think can be interpreted a lot of different ways and can and relate to a lot of people male or female reading and you said that most women put the burden on themselves when something goes wrong because disappointing yourself is easier than having someone else really hurt you So where did that quote specifically come from for you? That quote is a direct lesson from my therapist at the time. So she is the person who told me that wise uh, tidbit of information. And through that time, I saw it everywhere and I still see it everywhere. I, I still do this. I still blame myself because it is easier. I think it's it's so true. So many women, like if something goes wrong or something bad happens, whether it's with their family, their parents, or a relationship, mm-hmm. or their job, they if something goes wrong, it's so much easier to go, oh, but that wouldn't have happened if I did this. I, I yeah. ended on, I caused it. When in reality, it was 
it could, could have been the other person's issue. There's nothing you could have, have done to prevent it. But it's easier to go, oh, if I just didn't do that, than think that someone could or wanted to hurt you in that way or didn't care enough to do that. Yeah. So in context, uh, 13 years ago when I was writing that book, the concepts that I'm trying to hit with that are I have been cheated on in a relationship prior to writing this book and a lot of blame went on myself because of that. Also, parental divorce is something children blame themselves for quite readily, um, especially in a dynamic of either an alcoholic or a drug-addicted family. There tends to be one child, two children, whoever, someone in that family tends to go in the people-pleasing role to try and calm things down, make things better. Um, that was me to a T. So it kind of fed into that. It's easier to blame me. It's easier to take it on myself. If you blame yourself, you don't really have to have that connection with somebody where they broke trust with you. It's like you disappointed yourself. And if you're used to doing that anyway in a cycle of self-harm, well, it feeds right into that, right? Me and Kennedy have talked about this before in that there's this um, kind of dialogue that the perfect woman is somebody that is takes on the burden of everybody else around them, and that's the highest ideal of being a good woman. So I think that kind of speaks to that, that we take on everyone else's stuff, and it's our fault because that's what it means to be good. Especially, you know, that maternal figure that... Is kind of the pinnacle that as you grow, you're supposed to kind of morph from that sexy into that yeah. maternal, and it's really confusing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're basically, you're spot on with that. There's a selflessness that comes as like, that's what a good woman is. She sacrifices, she puts other people before herself. Everyone is more important than her. My whole adulthood has been trying to unlearn that and I still ended up in a pretty toxic relationship. The learning process is never over. Sometimes we can't, it's a quote from the book, sometimes we can't see what is directly in front of us. And that's why it's so helpful to have that support network in your life. People you really trust, people whose opinion you like is weighty to you that you will go to and who can kind of steer you or point things out to you that you might not notice when, for example, you're falling in love or you're meeting, you know, you're falling for a dream job even. It doesn't even have to be about a man or a woman. My goodness, the pressure on women these days to be the housewife, the mom, the successful worker in like this amazing, because, you know, we're all supposed to go to university now and get, it is so much that, like, you would think that we're so busy as women with all of those expectations that we don't even have time to think about what we eat. Like, we, but that too, we're, we find a way and it is not our fault. It is absolutely not our fault. We're dealing with social pressure. We're dealing with sexual pressure. We're dealing with so many massive things at once that, I think that that's important too because whenever you struggle with something like this, it's easy to feel at fault. Like, well, what did you do? Yeah. 
I think there's a huge pressure on the individual is in charge of everything. And it, it, when you are in healing in any type of health, mental or physical, it's all about the individual as themselves. You do it alone. It's not really thought of as a collective. And I think um, that can be super damaging. It can, especially in the woman's role where we're supposed to yeah. be taking on other people's stuff. Who do we reach out to? A really interesting point, actually, how self-care is this like solo activity, really. We talk about it in such an independent way, like you need to be doing these things where some of the best self-care is community and connection. Thinking about the your current, you know, perspective on women and what it means to be a woman and stuff, going back to what you wrote when you were 17, here I want to read part of what I'm going to read the whole thing your definition of a woman so you said to me the definition of a woman is a female who can stand up for herself take care of her needs and indulge in her desires without any guilt someone who doesn't follow the rest but creates her own path someone who is living for themselves their dreams their families their lovers for whatever they need to do to be happy. A woman is a female who can show emotion without worry, who can argue without fear, and who can stand on two feet all by herself and accept a hand when it's given. So, I when I read it, I'm like, ugh, I wish. Who can be like that? But, right? <laughs> like, who, who can do all those things? But it's, it's the ideal, but then we're also putting this ideal pressure on ourselves to be that and why aren't we that why can't we be that for ourselves why can't I stand on my own two feet why can't I show emotion and be emotional but also stand up for myself why can't I do both um so do you still stand by this definition do you how do you feel about it looking back now I think it's a beautiful quote I have mixed feelings um I do I have mixed feelings about it I reread the quote last night and similar to you, I'm like, well, that sounds, that sounds like, you know, some, some woman has really got to put together. There are aspects to it where you can see me, like you can see the thought process that I'm working through as a young woman trying to define what it means to be a woman outside of what society has told me it means. Today, many of those qualities are are just like genderless. They're just like good things for a human to to strive for. When it comes down to it, yeah, I kind of did create a new ideal of a woman because that was the only way my brain knew how to move away from the current ideal. It was like one for another. Um, today, I, I do stand by the, you know, following your dreams and speaking up for yourself and all of those things are so important. Um, and doing whatever you need to, to be happy has been probably the hardest and biggest thing that I've had to work with as an adult. I think that it's possible to be that woman and be super flawed and be, you know, what would be categorically a mess. (laughs) We, you know, we say like, she's a hot mess. mess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, A woman to me, like the quote unquote woman with a capital W would be like, whoever the fuck you want to (laughs) be, you know, at this age, that's what I'm going to say. Like I would have never expected that I would feel like this definition was kind of constricted and constraining for some and that 
I don't want to exclude anybody in the potential for this book to help them. I don't want anybody to feel like it's not written for them because it really is written for anybody. Yeah. No, reading that quote, I, I agree. I, I was, at first I was like, oh, this is interesting. You're, you're kind of already putting pressures that you, of ideals that you have to live up to. But I think um, kind of rereading it, it really takes it back to the core of, of the book and, and it's that you're trying to define Michelle and define her and figure out who she is. And you're creating these definitions because if you create them, maybe you Michelle will pop up in them and she will find herself in those ways. So, again, yeah, again, it's not a perfect definition of what a woman is. And I am there is no perfect definition. But I think that it really does go back to the core of the book of self-discovery. Absolutely. There's a quote that you said that always kind of pops in my head when I'm thinking back on your book, and it's that my body is a portrait of my mind. Um, And I think it just totally relates back to those pressures you have on yourself, how you're viewing yourself, finding who you are. And it's a struggle and it can go down really negatively. It's like my 17 year old self left me like little nuggets of treasures for me as an adult to come back to and then like put the pieces together and really understand my experience because I, I, as an adult, I forgot a lot of what happened. Right. And then you read it and you're like, wow, that was really bad. (laughs) Like that was another huge turning point for me too, is when you get on out there and start you know you just continually find more pressure to put on yourself no matter what it is every new experience is of new pressure on page 26 of your book you have some quotes about statistics about eating disorders and I think these are really important to share with people and I think we should share some resources for people where they can go and find help so um I'm going to read these out for people. So eating disorders are the third most common chronic illness among adolescent females. And I think something to add to that is what I've learned through um, my mom is that eating disorders affect women tremendously, but it's astounding the amount of men, number of men that um, eating disorders affect. And I think it's a, it's a hard thing. There's men see a big shame in coming across with an eating disorder. So I think that's an important thing to share, is among adolescents with an eating disorder, fewer than one in five have received treatment. And every 62 minutes, at least one person dies as a direct result from an eating disorder. So those are very powerful quotes and statistics. So where, what what can you say to that? Do you have resources where people can reach out and go? Absolutely. Um, I would say first and foremost that when I was publishing this book, I didn't want to make it too heavily scientific or anything like that. But I decided to look up the statistics because I didn't know. And when I saw that, it really, really hit home for me, the larger picture of this project that I worked on. Um... The best place to start with is the National Eating Disorder Association. They have a ton of resources online. Now, it's going to be online information. So that's where you can start your journey. You can start getting information. Um, This is true of people who might be concerned about themselves or somebody else. The thing is, is that I know that it can be really difficult when you're struggling already to reach out for help. And that's why... 
sometimes accessing things online is, is a lot easier. Um, you can, there's, if you want direct help, contact the mental health program in your local area. If you do not have one, go to your family physician, talk to your family physician. That might be the best thing regardless. If, if you don't have mental health support in your town, go to your doctor. People go by searching, right? Eating disorder help, eating disorder support groups. If you are um, struggling to find help, there are a lot of online therapy options that exist now um, where you can talk to licensed professionals and get targeted help and treatment. No, I think that's great. Can you please let us know where we can people can keep up with you, where they can find you, uh, plug yourself, your website, where people can keep up with your new book coming out, where people can just reach out and learn and listen. For sure. Um, so the first place where I'm going to announce my book release is on michellepugel.com. That's the place where you want to bookmark to find all my latest musings and projects. And it's regularly updated with new content um, in the blog and that's where you can follow the health articles that I write online for several outlets. You can also find me on Facebook under Michelle Pugel, writer and author, and you can follow me there. I post my content. Everything I write goes up on there. Um, also quotes, things about writing, things about what I'm doing personally, how I'm taking care of my mental health. You can also find me on Instagram if you are into following my photos of some of the things that I get up to. I also post some of my writing stuff there and it's just at Michelle Pugel. Usually I've made myself pretty findable. Um, I'm an open book so if you Google Michelle Pugel, you will find me. And I think it's good for people to look you up because you're a great resource with your blog postings and your health articles and your writings and your experience, as people will be able to tell from this podcast. So find her, look her up, follow her, and keep up to date with her, her knowledge that she wants to share with people. Thank you. I also have fibromyalgia, so I write quite heavily about that. And lifestyle management with chronic illness is basically my beat. How to be healthy and chronically ill at the same time is is my life. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great resource for people because the people that do deal with chronic illness, like it's an everyday constant occurrence and it can be so draining on your mental and physical well-being and health. Absolutely. And sometimes just knowing that other people are struggling too and like doing it, you know, we're still working, we're still having relationships and having great memories and making moments and enjoying life, it's possible. I mean, that's the thing that I want everybody to know. It's so possible to recover. You just got to put the work in and you have to stay true to your path of recovery. We ask all of our guests to end off with two questions, just like a little shtick that we do. So the first question is, what is your go-to song when you need to pump yourself up and feel like a boss chick? Oh boy. So I would say it shuffles through depending on what kind of boss chick right, exactly. I need to be in. You know, there are different <laughs> boss chick 100%. vibes. Um, right now, I've been kind of really repeating um, the playlist from Rob Bailey and the Hustle Standard. It is basically a mix of like super motivational speech 
plus like hardcore metal. <laughs> yeah, awesome. it's very interesting, but sometimes with depression, um, I find that like it is so helpful to blast loud music and just like get yourself mm. in the song and own oh, it. Totally. <laughs> That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. yeah. What a cool perspective. Yeah. Okay. And the second question is to plug a local business in Kamloops that you want people, um, you want to support and you want people to know about. So it can be food, clothing, any type of local business in Kamloops that you think deserves some some hype and some love. That is super easy for me. Oxygen Yoga oh, okay. Studio in yeah. Aberdeen. Um, I've only so had good. the pleasure of going a few times before the new restrictions set, but that is a healing space. When it opens again, I'm going to be the first person awesome. there. Awesome. Good to oh, know. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I've heard great things about it. Thank you. Okay. That's all of our questions for today. Thank you so much. Additional resources if you or someone you know is seeking help. Here to help.bc.ca, which offers mental health and substance use information. There is also NEDIC.ca, which is the National Eating Disorder Information Center, which has a variety of information on understanding eating disorders, as well as blogs, a helpline, and instant chats for your support. In a statement to the CBC, the Ministry of Health said there is a need for more services outside large urban centers, and the province is currently developing eating disorder clinics in the interior health region of British Columbia. The need for community-based agencies has not gone unnoticed, and many online programs are able to reach a larger scope of participants. Furthermore, provinces throughout Canada are recognizing this widespread problem, and they are increasing spending to expand provincial eating disorder programs. Again, we would like to thank Michelle for sharing her story with us and for educating us, but we felt as though one episode with her would not be enough to absorb all of her insights and knowledge, And so a part two to our conversation with Michelle will be coming out in the new year. So one last time, a big thank you to Michelle for being on the show. And go show your support by ordering Anna, Mia, and me on Amazon.ca. And with that, the bosses are out. The office is now closed. And we will see you next week.